If you'll take out and open God's word to Psalm 11, Psalm 11. We'll spend some time there. Psalm 11, somewhere in the Psalms, we're spending five or six, six weeks here. While you're making your way there and kind of get to your places, just by way of reminder, what lies behind the Psalms or after the Psalms is we're going to spend time starting in middle to late August. We're going to start the book of Galatians, right? The book of Galatians is going to be a great kind of side-by-side to the book of Hebrews, right? It is for freedom that Christ sets you free. Therefore, do not be yoked again by basically put to a yoke of slavery again. What is that slavery? What is that yoke? Self-righteousness and legalism that we are justified by faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Um, so as we kind of really get to see a glorious view of Christ through the book of Hebrews, we get to look at this work of him reconciling sinners, making us right with himself through his work and not our own, of which we are grateful. Amen? All right. I trust everyone is Psalm 11. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for his goodness just for who he is, for the blessing that is this morning, that his wisdom would see fit, that we would gather, and he would do a wondrous ministry in our lives, but also for his glory. This is his design, is that you be here, and I want to thank you for your faithfulness there. But we also want to thank him for his, his grace and favor, even what's transpired on Friday. And so we want to express the Lord uh, gratitude for his kindness, but also looked ahead and, look ahead and ask for his assistance now this morning. If you bow your head and close your eyes, let's do that now. Lord, we quickly want to run to you and be mindful of who you are. You have shown yourself time and time again throughout the whole of redemptive history. As we open up your word and read of accounts of old, you have displayed your faithfulness, your promises. You have revealed your heart. And Lord, that part of this rest in the center of that heart is for your glory and for your renown on this earth of which you have made. Lord, we thank you for your favor for this week, just for the judicial decisions that were passed down, the overturning of a a law, Lord, that uh, is no doubt going to preserve and spare the lives of innocent children around this country. We know how your heart feels about the shedding of innocent blood. You've been very clear about that throughout your word. And so we're going to look at Psalm 11 today that you hate violence. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be attentive now to what we read, that we would gladly and joyfully rest under its instruction. You'd give us insight and understanding, but, Lord, prompt us and convict us where you see fit for your glory. We want to be a people who knows what it is to have a strong, strong confidence in you, even in the midst of unsettling times. Would you work that in us for your glory, Lord? We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and let's read. Let's do this. Can you stand to your feet? Let's read in honor of God's word. We don't always do that. I think it's appropriate. This is, this never happens. I'm a short guy, so the fact that this is cannot go up any higher, that's a short music stand. Okay. I got it, I got it. There's two of them. Thank you. Psalm 11. It it reads, For the choir director, a psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. You can go ahead and take your seats this morning just to remind us there are many, many reasons why the Psalms are a cherished part of God's word to many, many believers. And many of you have already expressed that to me, uh, kind of off to the side that you love the Psalms, you cherish them, they're, they're sweet to you, they've ministered to you in years gone by. And 
There's many, many reasons for that. We covered a few reasons why we're studying the Psalms this summer. Number one is this. We need the big God worship of the Psalms to challenge the shallowness of our thinking, right? We need the big God worship of the Psalms to challenge the shallowness of our thinking, especially in this day and age, right? It's an epidemic even among God's people today. There's a sense where the majesty of God, the grandeur of God, the holiness of God is really lost in the evangelical mind. And so in that context, what do we need? We need to grow in breadth and depth and sincerity and expressiveness in our worship of this great God. And the Psalms help us in this space. Secondly, is that we need to hear and not just hear, but we need to delight in the gospel undertones of the Psalms. The Psalms really reinforce the gospel centricity that we strive for, right? Elevating God's mercy, his kindness, his loving kindness. The gift of his righteousness is really shining forth throughout the book of the Psalms. Even Christ is put on display in the Psalms. Down the road, we'll cover Psalm 22, which will highlight this. And in so doing, what does, what does the Psalms do as we kind of hear and delight in those gospel undertones? What does our appreciation for the gospel, what happens to it? It's bolstered, right? It, it's intensified. It, it's, it's, that flame is, is kind of fanned in our, in our love and our appreciation for the gospel. But not just that, but our commitment to our gospel mission that Christ himself gave us is also reinforced and strengthened, right? Really kind of synonymous to Psalm 117, praise the Lord, laud him all peoples, praise him all nations for his loving kindness is great toward us. And indeed it is. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. That kind of becomes our modus operandi. We operate in that space. Praise the Lord. His truth is everlasting and great is his loving kindness toward us. Third is that we desperately need their realistic response to suffering. We need to learn how to lament biblically. And the Psalms instruct us here. They show us how to deal honestly with pain and suffering and pain and suffering is a part of this life. The Psalms show us how to deal or face that pain and suffering while giving us hope as it points us to not only God himself, but also his faithfulness and his power. And why do we need help in that space? Why do we need to be pointed to God? Anyone tell me? Why do we need to be pointed to our great God? What's that? We forget, right? Kind of you, your homardiology is on display. Your understanding of sin and the fallenness and depravity of man, right? Is because we need a lot of reminders. And in that space, Our fifth reason why we need the Psalms is we need their sanctifying effect on the whole of our hearts. Why do we need these reminders? Because in our fallenness, we are prone to short-sighted despair. That is what our inclination often is. Let me ask you this morning, as we read Psalm 11 and the very start to the Psalm is, in the Lord I take refuge. You tell me this morning, what's the antithesis of that statement? What's the opposite of taking refuge in the Lord? What's that? Fleeing from the Lord, just running, head in the sand. What else? Looking inward, right? Self-pity, which can spiral into a dark, dark pool of unpleasantness, right? What else? What's that? Taking refuge in the world. If not in the Lord, I seek refuge in other places or other people. What else? I think along the same lines, self-sufficiency. We have a common grace. I got this. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of bootstrap spirituality, right? Just pull it up. Um, I got this. Excellent. Self-sufficiency. Thank you, Craig. Anything else? Do you need the sanctifying effect of the Psalms on the whole of your heart? Yes, I do too. 
Let's dive in. Let's kind of just look at a few things in the psalm itself. When we talk about, let's just start for big God worship. Where does that show up here? Well, just look at it. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the son of men. The Lord is righteous. I'm going to talk about big God worship. Where are the gospel hope-filled undertones? How does the psalm end? Somebody tell me. What's the last phrase? The upright will behold his face. Is that a promise? Yes. It, it, does that have redemptive gospel reassuring undertones to it? The upright will behold his face. And we long for that, yes? Absolutely. What is a biblical response to suffering? Well, you just see it and we'll talk about it in just a second. We'll unpack the suitcases that is the context or backdrop of the psalm. But one of the things he says or his ill-advised counselor says, if the foundations are destroyed, right? All of the moral moorings of society is um, unfastened. The ship is adrift. Society is collapsing. And oftentimes we look around and go, man, it feels like the foundations of society are in fact crumbling. And then there's this question, what can the righteous do? Fair question. I want to know the answer to that question. Well, that's the whole psalm right here, right there. The very top of it is your answer to that question. In the Lord, I take refuge. You want to talk about biblical perspective and a biblical response to suffering? That is it. Let's go ahead and begin to unpack that a little bit more. By looking at the context, what, what on earth is even really going on in David's life? It does start with, for the choir director, this is a psalm of David. Meaning this is a song. It is the inspired outflow from the life of a real man. And by real man, I mean a man with all his sin, weaknesses, challenges, deficiencies, a real man in a real situation that occurred in real time and space. And in order to see clearly what our response is to be to similar situations, light must be shed from context. What is going on in David's life? Well, look at verses one through three for a second. The light of context shines brightly right here. In the Lord, I take refuge. David says, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird? No doubt reminiscent of David's experience from being pursued by who? Who pursued David throughout the course of his life? Saul, excellent. And was it because Saul wanted to warmly embrace him and greet him? What did Saul want to do to David? To kill him, to end him, right? Look at 1 Samuel 26, 20. It says, now then do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord for the king of Israel, Saul, has come out to search for a single flea, David, just as one hunts a partridge, a bird in the mountains. That's the context here. David is... In a sense, since he's, someone is out to take his life. He is pursuing him incessantly and violently. He has ill intent. And this is the backdrop of the song. And his counselors say to his soul, well, just flee to your mountain. And, and why flee? Well, look at verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, David, what can the righteous do? What's going on here? There's two things that are true. One, David is no doubt in a time of crisis, right? Psalm 11 is a song of strong confidence in the Lord in the midst of very, very unsettling times. The wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the stream. It's already notched. To shoot in darkness at the upright in heart, the foundations are destroyed. What's the crisis here? Well, David is facing a, not just pursuit of his own life, but there's a bit of a 
national crisis as well that's really threatening to overturn the stability of the nation of Israel itself. All around him, even in that time, the moral foundations around him, the foundations of the people are crumbling. God's law and justice were being replaced by, even as Craig said, human autonomy. They are their own ruler, their own Lord. And when you live in the way of human autonomy and you are your own king and the foundations of society begin to crumble, what ensues? Is it order or is it chaos? It's the latter, right? Anarchy ensues. Social order and justice in David's day were, being, were given way to uncontrolled violence upon the righteous. And who are the righteous? Well, David says the, the upright in heart. They are the ones who are faithful to Yahweh. They are upright. That does not mean, just to be clear, that they are perfect, of which we are thankful. But their ways are characterized by straightness, right? Spectially in juxtaposition to the crooked path and way of the wicked or of the world. They are radically and diametrically different. And this upheaval was being caused by evil men who sought to do David harm. Even Psalm 82.5 talks about they, they creep around in darkness. Very similar here to Psalm 11. It's a graphic metaphor, right? Literally, David's enemies are being pictured as assassins waiting in the shadows, creeping around in darkness, ready, bows in hand, arrows knocked, prepared to launch a sudden and fatal and unanticipated attack upon David. If you pause just long enough, you can literally hear the creaking of their bows in the backdrop of the psalm. David is in a time of crisis. But not only that, to make matters worse, David was being counseled to abandon hope in God. Adding to his ordeal, his pain, and the anarchy around him, the people who were loyal to David... What did they do? What did David's counselors do? You tell me. They gave him bad counsel, gave him bad counsel right? Did they maintain their composure? Did they panic? Yes, they panicked. They counseled him to flee Jerusalem. So David says this, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? And you are his would-be counselors. And they were offering worldly advice with worldly solutions from a worldly what? Perspective. Flee as a bird to your mountain. If the foundations are destroyed, look around, David. Everything is going by the wayside. What can you do? What can the righteous do? And, and the, behind their question was implied what? David, we're small. We're insignificant. We're outnumbered. The world is against us. This is King Saul. You are David. What can the righteous do? And implied, it was a rhetorical question for them. Because they're communicating to David is that we can't do anything. Which makes the starting phrase of the psalm all the more powerful and grandiose, does it not? In the Lord I take refuge. That's what I do. The situation seems so dismal to David's pessimistic advisors that they perceived everything had been laid to ruin. There was nothing left to rely on. There's no course of action left to take but to flee for one's life. And so the gist of their question was this. Listen, David, in a, in a world and society run amok, and it is running amok, in a world where the dignity of life is casually ignored and raw power is ruling the day and ruling in the place of justice and righteousness and equity, look at it, it's crumbling. 
the foundations of society are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can they hope to do? Well, in comes the advice of the world, right? Everyone for themselves. Run, flee. You are small. And in your smallness, what can you do? You can't do anything. Take care of yourself first. That was their, in their panic, that was their modus operandi. Every man for himself is an ultimate reflection of self-interest and despair that existed around David. That was not true in David's life, was it? In the Lord I take refuge. I want to encourage you this morning, believers, we're not immune to this. Like, there's a very stark contrast. I'm either going to be like a David, at least my heart and my mind and the way I operate in life, or I'm going to be like someone else. And I'm going to be like David's would-be counselors. There's really only two places to rest. And we're not immune for being like David's counselors, are we? Look at Psalm 55, very similar correlation. Sometimes believers themselves feel more like fleeing than trusting in God to give relief, yes? And we can be candid about this and humble. As the psalmist writes, Psalm 55, give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror has overwhelmed me. That's not a healthy place to be, is it? And look at verse six. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. If I could just fly away from my trouble. Anyone ever been there? <laughs> oh, just sprout wings. Well, that's not David's response, is it? And in that vein, let's, let's look at what his response was. What is the biblical perspective and response we ought to have? Number one, if you're taking notes today, is the Lord is a refuge. Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's, let's rest there. The Lord is a refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. Safe haven, security, rest, protection, provision. Refuge is a huge theme throughout the Psalter. So that while the mood of David's advisors was that of panic, what was David's mood? It was Philippians 4, right? It was peace, overwhelming peace and surety. And why did he experience peace while they experienced panic? What does this peace come from? Where does it come from? Well, the key is insulation, not isolation, okay? Let me say that again. The key is insulation and not isolation. What did David insulate himself with? Look at the rest of the Psalm, Psalm 11. What did he insulate himself with? I'll give you a minute here. Look at verse four and onward. What's that? He meditated on the Lord. There's a good word from Psalm one, is it not, right? Meditate on the law day and night. I am like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. I will not be moved. What else? Excellent, excellent. Craig just said something important, right? The Lord is in his temple. The, David knows that God reigns, God reigns, God reigns. Key there is David knows. What did David insulate himself with? A deep and thorough and even tested 
knowledge of his God. Yes? David knew God's character. David knew God's faithfulness, his promises. He knew them doctrinally, but he also knew them experientially as well, didn't he? David insulated himself with a deep and thorough knowledge of God. You see now why Psalm, the Psalters begin Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. He had insulated himself with truth. And North Lake, if any of you in your own life observe anyone who weathers the storm of trial well, I want you to think about your own life this morning. You either know someone who is weathering trial well right now in the present, but if not right now in the present, you also know someone who has weathered trial well in the past. Can you think of that person in your life? Put them in your mind. Odds are a common denominator in each of those people is a deep knowledge of God that translates into unwavering confidence in God, right? Natalie and I talk about it often. Years ago, we saw a man in our church in, in Georgia pass away from cancer. He had a grueling battle. I cannot tell you to this day, I am moved by the life of Dave Huther, right? He passed through trial in exemplary fashion. And what was it about Dave? A deep and thorough knowledge of God. He had insulated himself. And even in his passing, he continues to bless many, many people. You know similar people who have passed through trial. Perhaps you are that person for others. David had this deep knowledge of God and you have to love his heart here, right? He desperately wants his ill-advised Ill-advised friends to know this refuge as well. Or in verses four through six, David proceeds to tell his friends why the Lord is a refuge. You have to love it. How can you say to my soul? You can picture this interaction between David and his advisor, his friends. Those who are loyal to him. How can you say this? And he proceeds to tell them and counter their advice. He literally puts his arms around his friends and he directs their attention to the Lord. And that's what each of us should do, is it not, right? As the people of Northlake, we should be all actively involved in one another's lives. And we should be actively involved in doing what? Redirecting one another's focus back to who? To the Lord. Any given day, one of you are gonna do that in my life. You're gonna encourage me. I'm gonna be prompted and compelled to grumble and complain and grow weary. And someone's going to speak into my life from this church and they're going to bless me. And you know what? Weeks down the road, I have opportunity to do the same. That's, that's the nature and beauty of the body of Christ. Amen? We take turns in needing that edifying work and ministry in one another's life. Every one of us have scenarios throughout the day to do what David's doing here. Put your arm around a friend and redirect them back to the Lord. The question is, even this morning, I want to ask you on a personal level, uh, level of just self-reflection, do you resemble more of David? Or do you resemble one of these friends who that would deter others from taking refuge in the Lord? Who do people know you to be? What is your voice in other people's lives? And what does it re resemble, David or his friends? Meant for just thought-provoking even beyond this lesson, perhaps. My encouragement is be a David, right? Tell others why the Lord is the greatest of all refuge. Let's talk about why he is the greatest of all refuge. Reasons why the Lord is a most excellent refuge. Number two, the Lord is in control. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. First thing David out the gate begins by affirming is the Lord's sovereignty, right? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Though it may seem otherwise, God has not gone anywhere. He's still there. He remains in his holy temple. 
He's ever present with his people. His throne resides in heaven. He's ever transcendent, ruling and reigning even over this painful trial. He's there. Why do you forget him? And yes, while the earth is shaken and the foundations seem to be being destroyed, while the world is shaken, God is not. God is not undermined. God is not overwhelmed. This is definitely not a picture of God being panicked. He remains unshaken and in power. I want, you to, I want to ask you this morning, what comfort would this have brought believers in David's day? What comfort might this have brought to his ill-advised friends? How would this have fostered a greater, greater sense of confidence to counter the pessimism of David's friends. What role would this have played? The Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. You tell me. Okay, focus becomes vertical as opposed to horizontal and everything around you. Excellent, what else? I'm sorry. Okay. The Lord's throne is in heaven, right? That is the throne that I regard, right? That is the throne that I want my mind resting on. What else? Excellent. Points to the audacity, right, of behind that self-sufficiency, right? Flee, run, every man for himself, panic, right? The audacity of that, that we would fail to set our minds upon he who resides unrivaled and ruling and reigning. We need these reminders, right? Every single day. Our God is in control, and not just in control, but... He's also this divine judge, which we need to take note of, right? His eyes behold, his, his eyelids test the sons of men. Here, David really affirms the Lord's scrutiny, an intense scrutiny. David assured his supporters that what was transpiring had, had not escaped the notice and view of God, though it felt that way. God sees and God knows every single human heart. And he tells them, he says, listen, it may seem that by God's inactivity, at least as you perceive it, that God doesn't care. But you need to know that God sees and God knows and God examines the wicked together with the righteous. Nothing escapes his gaze. He examines the inner life of the righteous who trust in the Lord just as he probes the soul of the wicked who love violence. His eyes behold, his eyelids test. God's stillness was not inertia, but concentration. His patience was given opportunity for both the righteous and the wicked to really show what they were made of. Look at this again. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. He tests them. Like a master smith that smelts precious metal to purify it of its impurities. The Lord's scrutiny is intense. What might a few implications from this be? His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Let me ask you, what might some implications of that truth be in our lives? What's that? Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. 
One of the things that was mentioned, the Lord sees, right? He sees us. He sees us in our plight. He sees us in our trial. He knows. He cares. But he also sees how I respond in said trial, in said crisis, right? What does that do to me? Prompts me to remain strong in my faith. The Lord sees, right? What's that? Examine, right? I, I want to assess. Am I more like David? Is Psalm 11:1 is that true of me, or do I resemble more of the foundations are destroyed? What can the righteous do? And just hands up, right? Wave the white flag. How does the Lord see me, right? In light of this, the fact that the Lord's scrutiny is incredibly intense. You and I as believers, we, we must remain strong in our faith, right? Not cowering to the enemy, which is the temptation, right? Not emulating our enemies, becoming like our enemies, but standing strong in our faith. Why? Because God sees both our hearts as well as theirs. And part of the psalm that tends to make us uncomfortable, David goes on to write, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And I say this can make people uncomfortable because sometimes attributing, the attributing of hatred to God is, raises some uncomfortable questions, especially in a context where today Christians really love to dwell and focus on the abundant and forgiving love of God. And he is that. We also need to be careful not to simply reject the uncomfortable, but seek to understand it within the context of Scripture. Psalm 5, 4 says, You are not a God. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. You want to talk about Psalm 11. The upright will behold his face. The wicked with you cannot dwell. He's very serious about sin. Scripture is very clear. God is always, always, always opposed to those who use violence to oppress other people. Right? Proverbs 6.16 talks about things that the Lord hates. You know what one of them is? Those who shed innocent blood. How does God feel about abortion? God hates abortion. Those who love violence, his soul hates. God is opposed to those who use violence to oppress others. And if we need a sense of the intensity of God's opposition, just look at verse 6 because we note the Lord's severity. Upon the wicked he rains snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. That harkens us back to the Old Testament. You think of an account where this kind of is reminiscent of. Test your Old Testament knowledge. What's that? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Genesis 18 and 19. Just in the, as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God destroyed those, the wicked cities by raining down fire and sulfur, here in Psalm eleven six, the wicked are expected to receive the same divine judgment instead of a cup of salvation which we get to drink from theirs is a cup of wrath reserved for them right and the psalm does not end there with the Lord's sovereignty and severity and scrutiny but the psalm ends in verse 7 not only is the Lord righteous the Lord is in control the Lord is in control, the Lord is righteous. Verse 7. The Lord is righteous. Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. The implication from this is that the Lord supports the righteous. The wicked will be destroyed, but his saints will be rewarded. The Lord is righteous. 
What's bound up in that suitcase? Well, it means the Lord must act consistent with his character, right? Which is holy and perfect. And in perfect holiness, our great God is going to dispense and execute perfect justice in all his dealings with men. So when you look around and bows are ready and arrows are on the stream and foundations are destroyed, the Lord is righteousness, righteous. And there's a tidal wave of reassurance that my God is in control and in his righteousness, my God will will deal with every injustice, every pain, every wrongdoing, and all opposition. Allah, just read the book of Revelation, right? He will not allow injustice to go unpunished. I encourage you to cling to that this morning. We've had many many years already in your life, however long that may be, where you've experienced a number of injustices upon this planet. A number of manifestations that have revealed to you and reminded you that this world is not what it ought to be. It is broken. And there are painful, stark, ugly, ugly reminders to that every single day. 60 million children who are no longer here, right? Just being one of them. And it's easy to think in 50 years of what's God doing? Where is God? What, when is he gonna make all of this right? The Lord is righteous. I don't know timetables. I don't know means in many regards, but the Lord is gonna work out his plan. He's going to execute justice. He's gonna make all things right. As believers, we cling to that, right? And what that does is prompt us to do Psalm 11.1. In the Lord, I take refuge. This world that I live in is spiraling out of control. It is not getting better, it's getting worse. Our God loves righteousness and he loves justice and he will uphold that. And the encouragement to you this morning is that the next time you face trouble, whether it be in opposition from enemies, no one is pointing a bow at us this morning. But Craig and I were just talking about earlier, there is opposition to a biblical worldview. There is people who are diametrically opposed to the agenda of God. What do we do? Well, the upright remember that one day we're gonna behold his face. I just wanna be faithful with this day, then the next day, and the day after. And I want to be found before him as taking refuge in him. I don't wanna panic. I don't wanna grow despair. And I don't wanna be an instrument in anyone else's life to panic and grow in despair. This is a huge motivation to endure, yes? I will behold his face. How do we live what we learn? Well, number one, if any one of us hope to be one of the righteous that beholds the face of the Lord, first step is to put your trust in Christ, right? First and foremost, receive the righteousness that is his. And once his righteousness is accredited to your account, then the journey of uprightness begins, does it not? He sets you on a path that is straight. He indwells you with his spirit for the walking of that path. And we strive together to be faithful before him. But step one is to be made right with him through his perfect work of his son. Number two, in terms of living what we learn, is when the foundations are destroyed, the righteous really only have two options. That's fight or f- flight or faith, right? You can either run, put your head in the sand, and try to run away from your problems. Or you can be a people of faith. Until the Lord returns, I'm going to tell you this, and you need no reminder, the world is going to continue to be broken. (laughs) It's going to continue to groan, to be set free. Evil men will continue to oppress, even past this Friday. Our hope, therefore, is not in governmental powers. Amen? Our hope is not in legislative changes. 
Our hope and our refuge is where? Is in the Lord who resides in his holy temple and whose throne is in heaven. This God, our great God, who has offered reconciliation to his son and he is coming back again to set up his kingdom. In this really postmodern pluralistic society that we live in, it feels very much like the foundations are crumbling, yes? We don't know simple biological questions today. Christian values are being set to the wayside. Yet we as the people of God, our refuge remains in the Lord. And North Lake, this taking of refuge does not mean the escaping or avoidance of pain and suffering. That's not what this means. Right? Christ found refuge in his father, but even he was nailed to a cross at the hands of godless men. No, taking refuge is living in the midst of pain and suffering and resting in him, confident in him. Number three, in terms of living what we learn, as believers, we ought to be ready to speak a message of truth, comfort, and hope to the chaotic setting that is doom and gloom in the world. We have a message. We have answers, right? Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes, there, the eternity is written on the hearts of men. We are surrounded by people. There's this gnawing inside of them for answers to questions and, and they're trying to seek answers to, for them in illegitimate ways. Guess what? You have answers. Speak that message of truth and comfort and hope. And do it faithfully and constantly, even when you may receive some opposition. Let's show people what it is to take refuge in the Lord. Don't be like David's friends. Don't isolate from culture. That's not the solution. Right? We kind of joke and jest, let's just go build a compound in the mountains. (laughs) Let's go escape. It's tempting. And the answer is definitely not assimilating to the culture, which is also a means of fleeing. Now, what we ought to do and encourage each other to do is have a strong confidence in the Lord as our refuge. I want you to be thinking about that in your friendships here this week. Actually, I want to ask you now in closing, we've got a couple of minutes. What are some practical ways that you can be that voice in the lives of other believers around you? What does it look like in practical tangible ways. You tell me. What's that? Okay, maybe get, actually get together. Excellent. What else? Thank you, Joe. Be in the word. Yeah, we speak and encourage out of the overflow or the intake that we have throughout the week. Excellent. That well needs to be deep and wide, of which we pull from. Excellent. Be in the word. Know the word. Joe. Yeah. Be gracious as we encourage, right? If someone is prone to be in a moment of like Psalm 55, I'm in anguish within me. Extend compassion, grace, tenderness, not self-righteous judgment, right? Excellent. Don't be barbed in your approach. Love them well. Natalie. I think being careful at home with like your children not to speak badly. You know, to say something different about something you're doing. Because that's what you're Excellent. Excellent. So she referenced, like even in your own home, we have the comfortability to speak about what we observe in the world around us. And unbeknownst to us, maybe we're projecting something to our children that's not healthy, right? And encouraging them to think in unsound ways. Is that right? Excellent. Okay. Speaking ill of political figures, government, right? Excellent. There's got to be a pathway in place to settle, to bemoan what we're seeing and to genuinely grieve over it um, without also dishonoring the Lord. So that's where wisdom is applied. There was a hand all the way in the back Speak up. I can't hear you. No, go ahead. Be positive. Yes. 
Speak encouragement. Yes. Okay, excellent. She referenced, Laura referenced, you see individuals whose worldview is, is distinctively different, right? Um, remember they're blind and pray for them, right? That the God, Lord would open up their eyes. Excellent. They are fearful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, our hearts should break over that. They're fearful. Yeah. Exude. Yeah, peace. Exude. Yeah. Emanate. Out of your pores. Yeah, okay. Peace. Excellent. We could, we could keep talking. Thanks for your interaction this morning. Appreciate it. Let's go ahead and pray and thank the Lord for our time. God, we do thank you for, thank you for the richness that is your word. We see real life situations with real people who grapple with real, um, real issues, real conflict, opposition, real trial and pain. Lord, and you weave in and intend these, intend these things to be instructions for us towards greater faithfulness. We thank you for the ways and ask even for, we thank you for the ways in which you use your word to shape our heart and maybe even redirect our hearts and put guardrails around it where we are prone to kind of veer off into the ditches, Lord. We thank you for these safeguards. I pray that even Psalm 11 throughout this week would be just that, uh, that not only would it bring sweet solace to each of our hearts, but Lord, uh, its instruction would be uh, really barriers and safeguards that our, our focus would be so laser locked in to you who is in your holy temple and upon your throne that is in heaven. Uh, Lord, we ask that the, the overflow, the fruit of that, the byproduct would be, Lord, your people, we would be those marked by peace, just an unwavering confidence that you are God, you are in control. And Lord, help us to be mindful of this. Uh, we ask for mercy where we lose sight of it. We thank you that you're gracious to forgive. Help us as a church, may we embody what it is to encourage one another in this space. And we pray this for your glory. We want to exalt you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.